0: If you've got your Bibles with you, it'd be great if you could turn to the book of Isaiah, which is roughly near the middle of your Bibles, in chapter 9. And we're going to read the first seven verses of that. I've uh, titled this talk, No More Gloom which is um, a risk, I think, uh, because it's got the word gloom in the title. Um, But we'll see how we go. Um, Earlier on today, it was the light shines, um, but I've turned it into no more gloom because I felt that was what was uh, really kind of on my heart. So uh, let's just uh, run with it and see what happens. So Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 1 to 7. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their joy. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, Fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government. Or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Pretty good stuff. So no more gloom. Every time, as I've prepared this sermon, every time I've come back to this passage, I've had to stop after reading the first line. And there will be no more gloom. So what is gloom? Well, it's not, I think, what the cartoon eel would depict, which is something along the lines of, well, things aren't as bad as they could be, but they probably will be soon. It's that kind of gloom that sort of descends around him along with his friends in whatever the wood is called. Um, it's not that. It's not that. This gloom that Isaiah talks about here is a tangible oppression. It's a heaviness. It's something which is on the people. A heavy thing, an immovable thing a thing that they can't see the way out of. And I find it interesting that in verse 2, it's linked to darkness. So in verse 1, there will be no more gloom. In verse 2, the people who walk in darkness. And just as I was thinking about, well, what does gloom and darkness look like, I didn't have to think very long before I thought about our world that we live in. And the fact that there is plenty of gloom and darkness out there. I've just finished reading a book called The Vicar of Baghdad, which is by Canon Andrew White. And, um, he, he used to be in this sort of area, um, in the, in the Midlands, but he's subsequently moved to the Middle East and spends most of his time in, in Baghdad, um, which is an interesting place to be. Um, And he is a canon, so he's a, a vicar, and he's got a parish there in the middle of Baghdad. His story is quite incredible, but the thing that struck me about it is that he has had this church, been overseeing this church, and gathered hundreds and hundreds of people to this church in the middle of what can only be described as a pretty desperate nation. And as I read the book, what struck me was the, the fear that has been on that nation for decades under the rule of Saddam. And then even since uh, Saddam was uh, taken out, there's been a heaviness over the nation, a desperation, a fear that they might not see next week or that their loved ones won't come home or they will, you know, a rocket will hit their ha- home in at whatever time of day or night. That's gloom. That's gloom. That's oppression. That's fear, living like that. It's not just Iraq. I saw this tweet earlier in the week. World Food Programme suspends critical food aid scheme for over 1.7 million Syria refugees. There's a picture of a little lad there in front of some tents in a refugee camp on the Syrian border. 1.7 million. 200,000 people roughly live in the borough of Solihull. So that's eight, eight times the number of people who live in our borough don't now get the food aid they so desperately need. That's gloom. That is a life of gloom and desperation. Last Saturday, I was in a supermarket and happened to bump into uh, a friend, I haven't seen him in years, and uh, he now works for Trussell Trust Food Banks, who organise food banks around the nation. And I just asked him how things were going, and he said, Work is going great, but that's a bad thing, because it means that the need, therefore, is great and greater than it ever has been. And it just made me think, as I was doing my shopping, that some of us will be worrying about where we, need, where we can store the extra food in our homes for the friends and relatives that might be coming over the Christmas period. And yet there will be many people in our nation who will be worrying whether they have any food in their homes this Christmas. There is plenty of gloom out there. Plenty of gloom out there. And I could go on with examples. But this passage starts, but there will be no more gloom. (laughs) That kind of sticks in the throat, thank you. Yeah, I'm excited too. Um, It kind of sticks in the throat a bit, because there there is a mismatch, therefore, between what we see on our doorsteps and on our TV screens, and what we see in the passages of God's word, there will be no more gloom. Now, we know that ultimately, yes, there will be no more gloom. But I think there's a much more present reality as well that this passage speaks about. And so this line, there will be no more gloom, says to me, there will most certainly be an end to the gloom that there currently is. And that is good news. And Isaiah illustrates it now um, with this particular group of people. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson. Um, Now, Rob kind of touched on this passage last week. So if you didn't uh, listen to his his sermon about positioning and the, the significance of the geography of this... I'd refer you to that. But I'm just going to give you a little bit of background to it as well. But Let me read verse 1 of Isaiah 9 again. It says, uh, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make them glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Okay, So that's verse 1. And I think the thing that I want to say there is that Naphtali and Zebulun are two of the 12 tribes of Israel. And when Israel went over into the promised land, they were led over by Joshua into the promised land, they conquered the land, and the land was divided up into portions. And every tribe of Israel got a portion, apart from the Levites, and that's another story. But anyway... The rest of them all got a portion. And Zebulun and Naphtali, therefore, were given regions of the land that they were to inherit, that they were to live in. By the time we get to what Rob preached on last week, which was Jesus' ministry into that area, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali was known as Galilee. Okay, And these tribal distinctions of the regions had kind of disappeared, given way to this more national and therefore regional within it background. So that helps to give a bit of background there. But I'd like you to turn um, or look at the screen because it's going to be up there to 2 Kings chapter 15. And verse 29 says this. In the days of Pekah. King of Israel, Tiglath Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Ijon and Abel Beth and Janoah and Kedesh and Hazor and Gilead and Galilee and all the land of Naphtali and he carried them captive to Assyria. So there's a map and you'll notice that the first few names so Ijon, Abel Beth Janoah, Kedesh and Hazor are towns right in the north of the land of Israel and my guess is that they're listed in the order they were conquered from north, northernmost to southernmost as the Assyrians kind of came in through the north, through Syria and into the northern territory of Israel okay. Gilead, the arrow goes straight across that is the land that is on the east of the Jordan that was known as the land of Gilead And Galilee is that whole region there um, to the north. And if that was a tribe's map of how the tribes were overlapped, then Galilee would cover pretty much all of Zebulun and Naphtali, which are mentioned in the passage, and most, most of Issachar as well, which was another tribe. So why am I saying all that? Well, I'm saying that because although we know that Israel was taken off into captivity into Assyria. That happened in 722 BC. This verse happened in 733 BC, a whole decade before. So what happened was the Assyrians started to spread out their empire and they started within Israel by taking away this northern territory. The rest of the nation had a decade left still in the Holy Land. These people were carted off. They were treated with contempt by God. That's what Isaiah describes it as. So no wonder these people are gloomy people. They've not only gone into captivity, but the rest of their nation hasn't come to their aid. In fact, they've been abandoned, not only by their people, but by God. He treated them with contempt. This land of Naphtali, this land of Zebulun has gone. The people have gone. And for a whole decade, they're basically kind of lost, if you like, because they're in captivity and the rest of the nation is still back where it was. And so these people have experienced a loss of absolutely everything. Their property has been seized, their family has been dispersed or killed, their community no longer exists. Their possessions, they won't have any, maybe apart from the clothes they wear on their back. Their livelihood gone. Their future was, has just kind of disappeared through their fingers. They've been cut off from the rest of the nation. And so it's no wonder that we can, if we re-go back and read the end of chapter 8 of Isaiah... Verses 21 and 22 say this, They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. But there will be no more gloom. That's the next verse. The context is one of utter devastation, utter hopelessness, totally abandoned by everyone that they thought would come to their aid. God included would be how they felt. But there will be no more gloom for them. God is going to turn things around. And instead, he's not just going to restore them, but actually they're now going to be at the forefront of blessing. Later on, he shall make them glorious, verse 1 says. You see, when God restores, he doesn't just give back. He gives back over and abundantly more, a measure pressed down and running over. That is the extent of the goodness of our God. And it is to these people, these people who were the first to be sent off into captivity, these people who were the, the, the ones to be abandoned It is to them that the light comes first. That's what Rob preached on last week. That Jesus goes to this region and that's where he begins his ministry. Isn't that amazing? That is the glorious way. The other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So, how is then God going to fulfil his promise of no more gloom? Well, I think there are two things or two aspects of it and the first is this there will be no more gloom because the light will shine so this was the original title of my sermon the presence of light dispels darkness of that there can be no doubt and uh, I thought about all sorts of experiments we could do by turning all the lights off because it would be dark now at half four or whatever and like a candle how much light but I thought no I won't do that But I will tell you this story. Joseph, our four-year-old, has a clock. It glows blue in the dark because it's nighttime and there are stars on it that gradually count down until the sun comes up in the morning at the time you set and it goes yellow. Well, sometimes... When he has to sleep in our room, if we've got relatives round or we're on holiday and we're all in the same room, that sort of thing, we have to have the clock there as well because otherwise at four o'clock in the morning you get a, so is it time to get up yet? So at least if the clock's there, he knows how the clock works. But the clock is so annoying. It glows blue. That means that the, light, the room isn't dark anymore because there's this annoying in the corner. You can't have darkness if you've got light. It just is impossible. Light dispels the darkness, gets rid of it. And what I think is described in this passage is not just a light being turned on, but this is an invasion of light. This is an explosion of light. This is is something of absolutely immense magnitude this changes the whole of history this light so when it says the people who walk in darkness will see a great light well insert that for any kind of big descriptive word you can think of because it's massive absolutely huge this is god come to earth this is god sending his light into the darkness And as I began to study this, I kind of got to the point where I felt I shouldn't really be surprised that this is what God would do, I send his light to those in darkness. But it did surprise me, and I was surprised by that, if that's not too many surprises. But when I think about God and light, well, God in his very nature is light. So 1 John 1:5 1, says, "God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all." It's amazing, isn't it? You know, yeah. If you can, yeah, it's just amazing. He's light. There's no darkness in Him at all, at all. 1 Timothy 6:16 6, says that He dwells in unapproachable light. And so, if God is light, and dwells in light his his very nature is light then surely it's no surprise that when he acts he brings light he kind of leaves a deposit of light behind him this the people walking in darkness will see a great light is totally in keeping with his character totally in keeping with his character And the light that he brings is transformative and it's redemptive and it's restorative and it it brings things back into line. And it's explosive and it's invasive, cuts through the darkness. And so I just want to spend a few minutes just thinking about this particular aspect of God's character. Because I think there's something in it for us. Because if God truly is the bringer of light, then when we study that in scripture and see how he does that, then that can build our faith that he would do that again, because God does not change. And therefore that can give us hope and faith for our times, with our loved ones in our places. So I want to take you all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. First page and creation what were the first recorded words of god that was a question <laughs> okay there's a kind of mumble around the room i think you all said um, let there be light isn't that amazing that the, the the first thing god says is let there be light he could have said anything let there be cheesecake why not? But he didn't. He said, Let there be light. That says something about his character, doesn't it? The light that he spoke into being at that point brought order and beauty amidst the darkness and chaos of those early days, if there were days at that point, because he'd only just created light. And as soon as he created the light, he describes the light as being good. That's great, isn't it? He doesn't look at the darkness and go, this is good, I'll create some light, this is good. No, the darkness is there. He speaks light into being and says, this is good. God invades chaos and darkness with light. Just light, bang. An explosion of light into the darkness. So creation, the first example, I think, in Scripture of where we see God bringing light. Another example is the incarnation. Okay, special word, but all it means is God becoming man and living among us. That's what it means. And I use it because it's Christmas. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. But that is what Isaiah's talking about in this passage. Let's look at John's Gospel, start of John's Gospel, chapter 1. I'm going to read the, the first four, five verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is Jesus being described as the Word. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Amazing, isn't it? That Jesus coming to earth is described as the light shining in the darkness. The darkness didn't get it, but that didn't matter because the light had come to earth and if you turn on a few pages in John's gospel chapter 8 and verse 12 Jesus describes himself as I am the light of the world he who follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life that's why the light spoke into the darkness because he was the light of the world that's who Jesus was And so when we say about the incarnation, all we mean is that God sent his light in the form of Jesus. Jesus, the light of the world. The message of Advent is that the light of the world has come. And that verse that uh, Beck read out earlier is also in my notes, so I'll read it again. Um, Because the tender of mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, To shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet by the way of peace. The sunrise from on high. That is Jesus, the light of the world. And that is what the New Testament writers apply this passage in Isaiah 9 to. That there is a light shining in the darkness. So God acts with light at creation. He acts with light at the coming of Jesus or the incarnation. He also acts with light in our salvation. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. I've had a lot of special time in this verse the last month. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. For God said, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness as we have already seen, is the one who has shone in our hearts. That's what salvation's about, isn't it? Our dark, dark hearts and his light, bang, shining, invading, into our hearts. Why? To give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That is immense. For those of you who want to study it a bit more, there's a a really nice contrast if you read verse four alongside it as well, the contrast with what the enemy does in blinding our eyes to the light and then the way God invades with light. But you'll have to do that in your own time. But as Paul wrote that, I wonder if he had in mind his conversion experience, where he was riding, if you remember, along the Damascus Road, and suddenly a great light flashed around him. God, who said, like light shining darkness, has shone light into our hearts. God invaded Paul with light, and that changed everything for him. Absolutely everything. Church persecutor, now church builder. Gospel hater. Now a gospel preacher. Just the transformation was total. God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts. That is my testimony. That God shone a light in my heart. I didn't do anything to generate that. I was far from him, but he shone a light in my heart so that I could see the glory of God in the face of Christ. So we see God acting, bringing, sending light at creation, in the incarnation, in our individual salvation, and as well in consummation, which I have uh, just mean in the consummation of all things. The wrapping up of all things at the end of the age, when things are perfected and completed. Revelation 21 gives us a picture of this. This is the day when all things will be as they should be. This is the, the time when everything will be brought into line, the consummation of all things. Revelation 21:22. I saw no temple in it. that is the New Jerusalem. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. Never seen that before. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night, its gates will never be closed and they will bring the glory and honour of the nations into it. And verse five of the final chapter of the Bible, and there will no longer be any night and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Oh, the Bible is bookended with light. Into the darkness, at the very beginning of time, God speaks, let there be light. And the end of the age is wrapped up with the light. And there is no need of any other light at all. I find that amazing. (laughs) Sorry, I'm laughing because my notes now say no room for gloom, which is just rubbish. But it's true. No room for gloom. In heaven, there's no darkness. Now, we have just sung a song, Our Father, who art in heaven, and the line that we repeat is, um, on earth as it is in heaven. What is it like in heaven? There is no gloom. Why not? Because he is the light. There is no room for gloom. And therefore, it follows on earth, no more gloom. No more gloom. You see, we have a God who is light, who brings light, who gives light, and who dwells in light. The light has come, darkness is dispelled, and there's no more gloom. But I think this passage goes even further. I don't think it's just about an absence of gloom, but I think Isaiah prophesies that there will be a presence of something in its place. And I think that's in verse 3. It says in verse 3, You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their joy. You can't have gloom and joy at the same time. That doesn't work. You can have gloom and no gloom, or you can have joy. And this joy flows out of being glad in his presence. That's in verse 3 as well. And again, just in contrast to the world pursuit of joy at this time of year, there's plenty of shopping to be done, plenty of gifts to be given and bought, plenty of food to be eaten, plenty of Santa Claus down the chimneys, and all that kind of thing. But true, genuine joy is only increased in his presence. And I mean in God's presence. And there are two pictures here, and I'm aware of time, so I'm just going to go through this fairly quickly. But there are two pictures of joy which I think are quite helpful in this passage, or in this verse, in fact. So, verse 3 says, You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their joy. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest. That's the first picture as when men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Plunder is the other example. And in both of those instances, people rejoice having done nothing. They just rejoice in what God has done. And I think that's how we should live as Christians. So the first picture is harvest. Well, what do you do at harvest? All you do at harvest, I'm not a farmer, but I believe all you do at harvest is you gather in what God has grown. Yes, I know that as a farmer you have to plant and you have to prepare the ground and you have to tend it, but there is nothing you can do to make it grow. God gives the growth. And that's why harvest is such an important festival in rural communities, agricultural communities. I was brought up in southwest Wales and kind of September, October time, we used to go round to all the little chapels for harvest festivals. It was great. There was always a brilliant spread put on by by the, the churches there. But why were they so grateful? Because this was the time of year they were able to give out of their abundance that God had given. But all they did was gather in what God has grown. That's the first picture, harvest, a joyful time. The second picture of joy is plundering. This isn't like, you know, breaking into shops during riots and stealing things. This is different from that. Here, the picture is gathering in what God has won on the battlefield. And the picture we have in the next verse is the Battle of Midian. Well, the Battle of Midian was where Gideon fought the Midianites. Gideon, with his mighty army of 300, against the thousands strong, tens of thousands strong Midianites, And Gideon's army did nothing other than shout, wave their swords a bit, and shake their lamps. That was it. And God brought the victory. And then they just went in and gathered up all the plunder. A time of joy. Why? Because the oppression was gone, and they were able to gather in what God had won. The joy that we have is joy in his presence and it is joy because and only because of what he has won for us that is what the light coming does it dispels the gloom and it leaves a deposit of joy in his presence and so we can reap the rewards of it that is that is incredible that is incredible That we just walk into the victory that he has won and we gather up the spoils, we reap the harvest. So, what does this mean for us? Well, I think it means that as we go through Advent and as we think about Jesus, the light of the world, coming as a baby, we can worship. We can worship because he did that for us. He shone a light in the darkness so that he could shine a light in our darkness. He has lifted our gloom. He has brought us joy, and that is worthy of our worship. But also, I think it can build faith in us, because as I started off by saying, this is a gloomy world. But if God is as God is in our Bibles, then we can expect him. To bring light again and again and again into any and every situation. And so that should give us faith to pray for situations where we see gloom. And so I've been watching the news differently since I've studied this. There's gloom. That poor woman in Bristol who who went out with her baby. What was going on there? You just pray, God break through the gloom. Why would people do that? But God can break through the gloom and instead he can bring rejoicing. He can do that. He can do that. When we see the refugees and the pictures and no doubt they will be across our screens this Christmas time, we can pray, God, would you, those who were treated with contempt, would you not make the way glorious and bring joy as you shine a light into their darkness? So it can bring faith in us build faith in us